Thank you, Emily. Uh, we guys can be in prayer for Chad and Emily because they're suffering in Hawaii and stuff. Thanks, Emily, for pitching in. Uh, so I was married in the mid-80s, in 1985, and something about the 80s that's really important for us to understand is that the Los Angeles Lakers were dominant, right? It was the decade, uh, and these two are going to come together, my marriage and the Lakers. And so, uh, I don't know, it was probably 86, 87, the Lakers probably in the playoffs, and I wasn't going to be home, and I needed to tape the game, so I grabbed a tape, and I put it in, you know, a VCR videotape, stuck it in there, and uh, taped the game. I, I don't know how I did this, but somehow I had taped over my wedding. Way to go. <laughs> Boo. So, so that was a problem. And so for, I guess it was like 86, 86, so for 30 years, I had not, re- I mean, I don't know how many people have taped their wedding and then at some point seen it again. You know, is that a thing? But I didn't ever did that. I had never seen my wedding. And we mentioned this somehow to my mother-in-law recently, and she said, well, I have a copy. Oh. So all that to say, yesterday, Christine and I watched our wedding from 30 years ago. And one of the things that we did throughout, I think for me, that was the first wedding I had ever been to. It was my own. And so I did, I'm just bumbling through it, you know. Uh, and one of the things we noticed was just how different it was than other weddings. We were comparing it to the wedding since then. Uh, Christina's father, one of, the, one of the big things was, I stood here for Dave Doherty, our former pastor, who was a pastor, he led the thing. But, and usually, the, when, I married, my, when my daughter got married, I came down and just turned her over right away. Well, he made Christina's dad stand there through most of the service. We weren't even together. We'd set our vows, and then he brought us together. So... That was a thing. So we were comparing that wedding with this wedding. And all that brings us to today uh, as we come to our third message in Romans chapter 5. This is a section that takes us from verse 12 to 21. And in this message, Paul is comparing and contrasting. Get it? I was, we were comparing and contrasting. Okay, all tied together. He's exploring the similarities, similarities and the differences between two people, between uh, Adam the first man, and between Jesus Christ, who, who's called the last Adam, who's called the Son of God, who is the Son of God. And his ultimate purpose is to show the vast support, superiority, the greatness of Christ, that we might have a, a sure hope in him, that as Tom said, the love of the Holy Spirit, the love of God might be poured out into our hearts. So let me quickly review what we've seen so far. Two weeks ago, We did verses 12 through 14, and the focus there was on Adam and his impact on humanity. How Adam's disobedience, Adam's uh, one sin, not that he didn't commit more, but that first one sin resulted in death for all people. Romans 5.12 ends with these words, death spread to all because all sinned. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul explains that because all sinned means because all sinned in Adam. That Adam, the first man, was in some uh, mysterious even, but very real sense, the representative of all humanity. That his sin was then credited to all, and therefore death spread to all. This fact will become 
even clearer today in our, in our passage for today. Now, at the end of verse 14, Paul then compares Adam to Christ. He says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type, a, a pattern of Christ. Which means that so, there was something about Adam, there's something about Adam that's similar to something about Christ. Now remember, he's just said that through Adam, sin and death entered the world. And that doesn't seem like Christ at all. So before he tells us how Adam and Christ are similar, he makes sure we understand how different they are. That's what he did. That's what we looked at last week in verses 15 through 17. Paul shows that that Christ is far superior to Adam. That Adam, the sinner, brought condemnation and eternal death. But Christ, the Savior, brought eternal life and justification. Paul makes sure we understand that when He said Adam was a type of Christ. He didn't mean they're equal or the same or even really very similar. So what did he mean? Well, that brings us to our passage for today, Romans 5, 18 through 19. We've we've been, as we've done the other verses, if you've been with us, we've looked forward at these verses just to help explain why Paul's doing this. But now we're here. We've arrived at Romans 18 and 19. In these two verses, we continue to see the differences between Adam and Christ But Paul also points out one major way they're similar. And that similarity has to do with the results of one act. One act that each man performed. So today we'll explore these these acts. Both of which were performed long ago, but continue to impact our world and our lives this very day. And so we begin with Adam and the, the tragic results of Adam's one act. In the beginning of verse 18 and in the beginning of verse 19, we find a summary and a clarification of what Paul has already said about Adam in verses 12 through 17. So this should sound familiar. It should reinforce what we've been looking at. Verse 18 begins, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, when Adam violated God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one act... That one act brought condemnation for all men, all people. That word men is is really people, all people. Remember, condemnation is a legal term for a penalty or a sentence. Adam was found guilty of violating God's holy standard. He trespassed. He, He jumped the fence. And as a result, he was condemned. He was sentenced to death. But it wasn't just Adam that was condemned. Adam's one trespass brought condemnation, uh, death to all people. Paul expands on this in the beginning of verse 19. For as for the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. When Adam disobeyed, when he disobeyed God, the many were made sinners. Adam was created by God, sinless, filled with human righteousness. Perfect, in a sense, humanly. He was and is a representative for all of us, for all humanity. And when he, the first and best man who ever lived until Jesus Christ, when he sinned, we sinned in him. We were made sinners by his one act of disobedience. This is what theologians call uh, the doctrine of original sin. And it has two basic parts. The first part, we've already seen, we've already seen that Adam's sin was, was then credited, uh, accounted, to all people, 
that we were from birth or even conception, if you will, condemned in Adam. And the second part is that we were made sinners. We inherit Adam's sin nature. When Adam sinned, he and therefore we experience a fundamental change to our being. If you will, Adam's spiritual DNA was corrupted. He was no longer righteous before God. His human righteousness that he had was gone. His nature was transformed. And that transformation, that sin nature, like other physical traits that are passed down by phys- in physically, physical DNA, was, was passed on through spiritual DNA. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We do not become sinners when we sin. We sin because we are already sinners in Adam. Adam's sin is credited to us. And when we sin, we we prove that we've inherited the sin nature of our father Adam. So I think it's clear that the results of Adam's one act of disobedience were devastating. They were tragic for all. Throughout history and even now, we see the results all around us. We see the tragic effects that many were made sinners. Every day, the news is filled with these tragic results of Adam's one act. Just this past week, in Riverside, we had a hostage situation at Castleview Elementary School and and another vile terrorist attack in New York City. There can be no doubt that our world is filled with evil, wicked sinners. Many were made sinners. We even see it maybe, maybe to a lesser degree in our, in our beloved children. I remember uh, staring down my son Michael when he was just a toddler. Sorry, Michael. He's not a toddler anymore. I don't stare him down anymore. He would go to grab something that he knew was off limits. I would say to him, I would look at him, and I would say, Michael, no. I'd give him a chance. Because that's the kind of dad I am, no. And he would look at me and just keep going with full understanding in his eyes. I could see it. Our sin nature rears its ugly head at a very young age. There are a lot of implications here. If you're a parent, you're going to be a parent uh, for raising your kids. Knowing that they, like you, like we, like all humanity, have inherited this sin nature. That that's their natural bent. And it's our job in many ways, to keep it in check, to keep them from killing themselves before they can come to Christ. And we don't have to look far uh, to see where our children get it from, right? Yes, it, they get it from Adam, but it's passed down through us, their parents. It, it, it goes every, it's every generation. We're included, you and I, in the many who were made sinners. We not only see the sin around us, but we experience it. We experience its devastating effects in our own lives. We know firsthand the tragic results of Adam's one act. We experience the pain and and the shame and the guilt and the consequences of our own sin. Maybe even today you're experiencing the results, the consequences of of sin. Sin in your life and sometimes we experience the consequences of sin in other people's lives. Maybe you're battling uh, some addiction. Maybe you're struggling with a a sinful habit. Maybe you've tried over and over and over again to break free from sin's grasp on your life. Sin sin affects our daily life. It affects your sleep, your joy, your relationships are broken. Maybe sin is affecting your marriage and your family. 
Marriage is often the the collision of two sin natures as we come together. But most of all, sin, your sin nature, my sin nature, affects our relationship with God. Sin causes us to doubt that we even have a relationship with God sometimes. It causes us, like our father Adam, to run and to hide in shame and guilt from God. This is the most tragic result of all. That we, humanity, because of one man's act, were cut off from our Creator. Our relationship with God was broken because of Adam's sin, and it remains broken because of our own sin. And what makes it even more tragic, I'm not done yet, is that there's nothing we can do about it. We're born into this world already condemned, with Adam's sin already in our account. Already having inherited, having inherited his sin nature. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good deeds we attempt, we cannot overcome the tragic results of one man's sinful act. Christianity does not teach us how we, on our own, overcome our sin. We have no power to rid ourselves of our sin nature. No more power to rid ourselves of our sin nature than we, than we, than we have to rid ourselves with our need to breathe and, and drink. It's part of who we are. It's part of what we do. And I know I'm plain, painting a, a pretty bleak picture here. And I need to leave it bleak for a moment. But rest assured, there, there's more to the story. There's more coming. There's help for you and for me as we struggle with the sin nature that we've inherited from Adam. But the help is not found in ourselves. It can't be. We're corrupted. It's not found in striving to obey a set of religious teachings. It's not found in doing good works, in helping the poor, in being kind to animals. I know these are the kinds of things good religion teaches us to do, but they will not help us overcome our condemnation or our sin nature. But there's help. More than help, there's, there's rescue from the tragic results of Adam's one act. Before, before we get help, I need to pause for a second. There are probably some who are thinking, who've been thinking maybe throughout our, our time with this. Wait a minute. Uh, and I've addressed it a little bit. I'm going to address it a little deeper here. Thinking that this just doesn't seem fair. Why must I, or anyone, experience the tragic results for what Adam did? I'm okay paying for my own sin, but why am, I, why am I condemned because of what Adam did? And I understand that thinking. To our minds, my mind, your mind, I don't know if it's a Western thing, I don't know if it's an individualist American thing. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. And I'll be honest with you, in all my reading on this subject, and I did a lot, I didn't find any amazing revelations, uh, amazing explanations. I didn't find some theologian who explained this this concept in such a way that was understanding and satisfying. Because the Bible doesn't really explain it. I mean, there are speculations, and we could go there, but we're not. Because the Bible does, it declares it. The reality that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So for me, this is one of those Isaiah 55-8 moments. 
when I realize the truth of what God said to the prophet. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. We must allow for the fact that God's thoughts, God's ways, are not ours. That they're greater. That, that, that they are always righteous. That they're always good, even when we don't fully understand. How could we expect to fully understand an infinite God? We may not fully understand God's reasons for crediting Adam's sin to us and causing us to inherit a sin nature, but we can trust in God to always do the right thing. Now that being said, there is one reason why, why, that I do want to share why I believe God credited Adam's sin to all people, and that's because it's in our text here. This may not fully satisfy our sense of fairness, but it certainly is, is good news. Paul hinted at it back in verse 14. He says, The reason Adam's sin is, was credited to, to all is because God wanted Adam to be a type of Christ. He wanted Adam to demonstrate how the act of one man can be credited to many. So now we turn to the triumphant results of Christ's one act. And we begin, we begin by identifying Christ's act. You can probably guess what Christ's one act is. Paul describes it this way in the second half, uh, halves of verses 18 and 19. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. By, by the one act, by, excuse, excuse me, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's act is one of righteousness and obedience. And this certainly uh, refers to his entire life, right? The author of Hebrews says this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He obeyed, submitted to the will of the Father in all things, every time. And it was because of his triumph over sin that he could become this perfect sacrifice, this sacrificial substitute for our sins. As John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus' life of righteousness and obedience led to his one final act of supreme obedience, supreme righteousness. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's ultimate single act of righteousness and obedience was, was His willingness to go to the cross. He willingly went to the cross, willingly sacrificing His sinless, righteous life so that sinners like you and me might become righteous, might be made righteous, that we might be justified and given eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul puts it this way, for our sake... He made Him, Christ, to be sin who, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ on the cross took on our sin. He took the wrath of God that we deserved. He took our place. He who knew no sin became sin, was made sin. Our sin was imputed, credited to Him, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might receive the divine, sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we might 
as we talked about last week, become more than Adam. Adam, before the fall, had human righteousness. But we receive, in Christ, divine righteousness through one act. Through Christ's one act. And that's glorious. That's why Adam is a type of Christ. So we've seen Adam's one act of sinful disobedience and Christ's one act of righteous obedience. Now let's compare and contrast. Let's begin with the contrast. Contrasting Christ's act with Adam's. Let me remind you first of the two tragic results of Adam's one act. First, Adam's sin, that single act in the garden, is credited to us, and we are therefore condemned to death in Adam. And second, Adam's sin resulted in his, his, his transformation, the, his nature being transformed, him having a sin nature, and that sin nature is passed down to all people. In Adam, we tragically receive both condemnation and a sin nature. And the contrast I want us to see is that Christ's act brings triumph over both condemnation and sin nature. Look at Romans 5.18 again. Therefore, as one one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act of righteousness leads to justification. Justification means being counted righteous, having righteousness credited to your account. So by one act, Christ's death on the cross, He triumphs over that that first tragedy of of our inheriting the, the sin of Adam. He triumphs over our condemnation in Adam. He eradicates Adam's sin that was credited to us. He moves us from condemnation to justification, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from death to life. Through one act, He revokes our condemnation and gives us salvation. And that salvation is given immediately to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, in His sacrificial death on the cross. When we put our trust in Christ, we are justified. We're counted righteous and immediately saved from condemnation. And then in verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice that Paul says, through one act of obedience, many will be made righteous. Where'd it go? I'm getting lost. There it is. So, uh, back in verse 18, he said, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's an immediate, that's a right now, that happens right now. But he talks about, but the, then he says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be. That's an that's a ongoing, that's a continual, that's a, even a future tense made righteous. We've already been counted righteous. We've already have the, the, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. Adam's original sin credited to, to our account has been dealt with. It's been eradicated. We're no longer condemned. We're justified. We can be saved. But what about the sin nature we've inherited? Paul says, we will be made over time righteous. Triumphing over our sin nature 
is a process. It takes time. It's a process that that will only be completed in glory. When we pass from from this earth and and we see Jesus face to face. But in this life, because of Christ's one act of obedience, we are being made righteous. We are being moved from unrighteousness to righteousness in reality, in our own hearts. This is what we call uh, sanctification. And this is what Paul will talk about uh, in Romans chapter 6 through 8. So hold on for that. But even now, it's my prayer that, that we would submit to God's work of sanctification, of transformation, of, of moving us from unrighteousness to righteousness right now, that we would allow Him to pull us we still have these yearnings, these longings. We're still prone to, to our father Adam, to that nature we inherited from Adam. That, that we would allow God to pull us further and further from the unrighteousness in Adam. And draw us further and further into the righteousness of Christ. That we would daily reject the life we were born into. The life of sin that we're prone to. And instead... We will give ourselves fully to the life we've been adopted into. A life of joy and righteousness and hope and victory. A life in relationship with the living God. A life made possible by that one act of Jesus Christ. Through one act, we are now being sanctified. Through Christ's one act, we are saved immediately and sanctified over time. So the contrast is that Christ's one act completely triumphs over the tragedy of Adam's one act. Christ triumphs over the the original sin that we're credited with and Christ triumphs over the sin nature that we've inherited. Now we turn to the comparison. Comparing Christ's act with Adam's. Let's read the verses again to to, to clearly see the comparison. We've referred to it, but I just want us to see it all together here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now we mentioned the similarity. Do you remember, do you see how Adam and Christ are similar? They're not similar in what they did. In fact, they're opposite. Adam's act was sinful. He disobeyed God. Christ's act was righteous. He obeyed. Also, they're not similar in the results of their act. In fact, again, they're opposites. Adam's act resulted in condemnation and death. Many were made sinners. Christ's act resulted in justification and life. Many were made righteous. So how are they similar? Their similarity is that they both performed one act that impacted many. One act that was credited, that, was, that, was, that, that impacted, that was imputed to, that was put in your account of many. This is how Adam is a type of Christ. They're both representatives of humanity, if you will, that all humanity will experience tragic results of Adam's one act or the triumphant results of Christ's one act. It's it's an either-or proposition. You and I and our families and our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors, everyone in our city and our state and our country and our world, 
Every people from every tribe and tongue and nation will experience the tragic results of Adam's one act, sin and death, or the triumphant results of Christ's one act, justification and life, salvation and sanctification. And just that thought should give us great pause. We should pause. We should, we should think about it. This is, this is the, the, the judgment, if you will, of all humanity. They will either experience being in Adam or being in Christ. And knowing that what we're seeing is the negative or positive fate of all humanity should give us pause. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul means in verse 18 when he says both single acts impacted all men, all people. And in verse 19, when, he's, when he says, both acts impact many, he's not saying, as some have taught, that, that like all people are impacted by Adam's sin, all people are made sinners and condemned to eternal death, that the same all people will one day in some way be impacted by Christ's righteous act. All people are made righteous, ju- ju- justified to eternal life, this, that, that in some way all people who have ever lived will be saved. This idea is known as universalism. And it's becoming more and more popular among those who call themselves Christians. Universalism fits well in our current culture of moral relativism and tolerance for all. It fits well in in a culture that says truth is relative. What's true for you might not be true for me. It also fits well with our, our, our desire to not see people we know and love condemned to an eternal death of Hell and separation from God. But the problem with universalism is that it contradicts two plain biblical teachings. First, it contradicts everything Paul has said so far in the book of Romans, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the law, apart from good works. If you've been with us, you have seen how Paul over and over emphasizes the importance of faith. Just one example, Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, a sacrifice for our sins to be received by faith. Faith is a requirement for justification, for salvation. And therefore, if you don't have faith, in Jesus Christ, then you will not be justified. You will not be saved. So the first clear biblical teaching that opposes universalism is that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The second clear biblical teaching that stands against universalism is that that there will be people who will not be saved. The Bible teaches that there will be a judgment and that those who do not put their faith in Christ alone will be found guilty and will face the wrath of God. Not pleasant, but it's what the Bible teaches. Romans 2.12, Paul wrote, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All who have sinned, whether they, whether they have the law or don't have the law, will be judged, will be perished, will be destroyed. And in 2 Thessalonians 1.8-9, Paul describes that destruction this way. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So the Bible clearly teaches that the only way to be saved is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that there are those who will not be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches against this idea of universalism that everyone will in some way be saved. But that leaves us uh, to explain this comparison of the all and the many in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And I believe the best explanation is this. That in the context uh, that we're in, Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul is comparing, as we've seen, and contrasting Adam and Christ. He's talking about their impact on humanity. He's talking about what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ. We're all born in Adam And if you continue in Adam, then you receive the tragic impact of Adam's sin, that is, eternal death. But if you by faith trust in Christ, you are no longer in Adam. Instead, you're in Christ, and therefore will receive the the triumphant impact of Christ's righteousness, justification, salvation, and eternal life. This is the context that we're in. So when we read verses 18 and 19, we have to read it in that context, and I think You'll permit me to read it, interjecting the context here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men in Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many in Adam were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many in Christ will be made righteous. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15.22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the comparison that Paul's making. That both Adam and Christ, through one act, have and will continue, that their impact will continue in the lives of many, in the lives of all. But the impact will not be the same for everyone. If you remain in Adam, you will die, spiritually, physically, and eternally. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be made alive. You'll be resurrected spiritually, physically, and for all eternity. Therefore, universalism is false. Those, uh, our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers who do not trust in Christ will die eternally. Eternal separation from God. And this, my friends, should move us to action. So I want to end just by applying Christ's act, applying it to us now. And, and it's not in your notes, but, uh, but I bro- I've broken this down into three, three parts. They're, they're quick, though, and they lead us to, to this, to communion. Three applications. The first is, is sharing Christ's act. If we're in Christ, if Christ's one act has been applied to our lives, if we've been saved and if we're being sanctified, if we've been brought from death to life, then we have to be moved by that. We must be moved to to evangelism, to missions, to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends and our family and our neighbors. This comparison, uh, knowing the, the results of this one act, should move us to involvement in the Great Commission. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, but all too often we, we act like uh, practical universalists. 
We may not believe that everyone will eventually be saved, but we act like uh, we don't care. We act like it doesn't matter. We go about living our lives knowing we're in Christ while the world around us is, is going to hell uh, in a handbasket or in Adam, if you will. And so I would encourage you, if you claim to be in Christ, if you claim to be saved and in the process of sanctification, I would challenge you to remember where you came from. Because we were all there at one point. We all can trace our roots back to one point. Remember that you and I, what we would have experienced if God had not used someone in our life. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a friend, a family member, a co-worker. A pastor, Sunday school teacher. Someone in your life to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one act of Christ. And so I would uh, call you to ask God to give you the privilege of, of praying for and sharing that, that message of salvation. Sharing about that one act of Christ with others in your life who are still in Adam. And that brings us to the, the second application. That is receiving Christ's act. So you're sharing it, and maybe this should have been first, but this is how my brain was working. Receiving Christ's act. Now, now, to, now to experience tragedy in Adam, all you have to do is uh, nothing. Being in Adam is our default position. We're born that way. But to experience triumph in Christ, you, you must believe. You must trust. You must put your faith in Him. And when you do, He immediately triumphs over the condemnation that you've received from being in Adam. You're no longer in Adam. You're immediately saved by grace through faith. And He then, over time, He triumphs over your sin nature. Especially to the extent even that you submit to Him. You enter into this process of sanctification. Again, Romans 6-8, through that's what we're going to be talking about. That's really where we live. We live in Romans 6, 6 to 8, and so I'm looking forward to getting there. And so today, if you've never trusted, but to get to Romans 6 to 8, you have to, you have to do this application here. You have to receive Christ's act. And so today, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you're still in Adam, you're still condemned to eternal death, I would encourage you that with all I have, to not leave this place before you give your life to Christ, before you trust in Him, before you trust in... And maybe you're doing that now in your heart. It, it happens as God draws you. Trust in that one triumphant act. Trust in His sacrificial death on the cross, that it, that it paid the price for your sins, that it paid, it took care of Adam's sin and, and more. It took care of all of your sin and, and my sin. That you trust in that. And then you invite Christ into your life to take control, to lead. So right now, I'm going to stop and I'm going to give everyone a moment to pray. And for those who've never put their faith in Christ, I'd encourage you to do that silently in your heart with your own words, just trusting in Him, inviting Him to be your Lord, your Savior. And for those of us who've already trusted in Christ, I'd encourage you to take this time to prepare your hearts for, for communion. Take this time to reflect on all Christ has done 
for you to who you are in Christ because of this one act. Take time to confess the sin in your life. Take time to renew your commitment to to being in this process of sanctification. As God gives, ask God to give you the power in Christ to overcome any sin you struggle with. Ask God to give you the desire to change your heart that you might, that you might uh, go back and apply number one, that you might share the act of Christ with those in your life. So we're going to pray silently for a moment, and then I'll bring us to a close. I, I'd like to ask the ushers and the worship team to come forward during this time of prayer as well. Would you pray with me? Give a, a, a time of silence for you to pray, and then I'll close it.